Hi, my name's Paul Grogan. Welcome to episode 39 of the all-new Gaming Rules podcast. This episode is an audio version of the live Q&A that went out in February 2023. A huge thank you to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible, and if you want to support the channel directly, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. And now, on with the show. Right, and I think we are live. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for joining in, as always, with these live streams. Let me know if you can hear me and see me okay. Uh, the chat hasn't appeared on screen yet, but hopefully it will. Uh, Vicky's thumbs up, so it looks like we're all go and the chat is appearing on screen. Excellent. Okay, right, you're going to disappear. Vicky's got to pop downstairs and, uh, and, and do some cooking-related stuff. So feel free to go crazy in the chat while Vicky's not monitoring it. You've got about two minutes to go absolutely crazy with the chat and do whatever you want, and she's not here to do anything about it. Um, cause trouble. There you go. Right, okay, so yeah, welcome to uh, this month's live Q&A. And for those of you that are wondering, uh, well, wait a minute, it's only the middle of the month. Why are you doing the live Q&A? So I announced last month uh, that I'm changing the, the, the structure of the month, basically. I'm going to be doing my monthly video logs at the end of the month, or in the last week of the month, that's what I'm aiming for. Um, and I'm moving the Q&As from the end of the month to the middle of the month. And this is the first one. So yes, uh, here we are. The, f uh, the format of this Q&A is going to be like all of the others, which if you're a regular viewer, you'll know what it is. Um, every month uh, in advance of me doing these live Q&As, I post a thread up on my Board Game Geek Guild. If you are not a member of the Guild on Board Game Geek and you are watching this, please head on over there, uh, join up, subscribe. It's guild number 2258. I will put a link in the chat. There you go. Um, uh, because, yeah, what happens uh, is, and the chat's still doing its normal problem. Um, yeah, so a few days before these live Q&As, I put a thread up on my Board Game Geek Guild uh, for people to uh, ask questions in advance. That's primarily for those people who uh, can't make the live Q&A but still want to ask me questions in advance. Um, there's other things that go on on the Guild well. There's, there's some really good discussions on there. But, yeah, head on over to the Guild. Join up, make sure you subscribe. I'm going to be going through those questions first. Then we're going to announce the winner of last month's contest. We're going to do the details of this month's contest. And then we're going to go over to the live questions. So if you have any questions for me and you're watching this live, uh, please put them in the chat, but start with the word question in capitals. Vicky will see them, extract the questions out and put them into there. So let's crack on with some of the questions that I've been asked in advance on the Guild. And the first one is from Mike. <coughs> Mike says, after ranking all of my games against one another recently, and if you haven't seen that, it's a series of live streams that I did in December and finished it in January, 12 hours in total where I rated my entire collection using the Pub Meeple ranking system. And he said, how many of those games do you think you could get rid of and still be happy with the collection that remains? Well, Mike, my answer to that is different from what my answer would be a year ago. Because in the last year, I have finally come to accept that I have too many games. And once my collection reached a certain size, there is no point it going above that. That's not to say that I'm not going to get any more games, because I am. New games are arriving all the time. But as more games arrive, I'd need to get rid of more. Um, so to be honest, my collection is now sitting at around, I can't remember what, about 700 maybe 720, 730 games, not including any expansions. Based on that ranking system that I did, I think I could probably easily lose 100 and it wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference. 
Um, and that's I'm, I'm likely to get rid of at least 50 uh, games this year, possibly more. Uh, and I, I donate all of my games to a charity raffle, so I don't sell my games. I don't get any money for them. All I basically give them to a charity raffle to help raise money. Um, and yet a, a year ago, I wasn't in the same space uh, as I am now. But where I am now, uh, we, we don't have enough space. There's games absolutely everywhere. And I'm really starting to feel that there's too many of them all over the house. And I, I really need to just cut down that number simply because everywhere looks a mess because there's games piled up everywhere. Um, and when I got rid of those 75 last November, it actually felt quite therapeutic uh, and I'm not going to miss any of them. So I could I could quite easily get rid of another 100 uh, and I and I wouldn't I wouldn't lose them. I, I wouldn't miss them. Right. Next question from Gavin. Uh, Do you find that my tasting games has changed over the years? If so, in what ways has it changed? The, the short answer to that is yes, absolutely. Um, for various reasons. Obviously, uh, like everything in life, we all grow and we all develop um, and we are influenced by uh, people around us, experiences that we have, plus our own personal tastes might change. So 10 years ago, for example, about 10 years ago, yeah, 10 years ago, um, I didn't see the point of cooperative games. Literally didn't even think they were games. Didn't didn't see the point of them. Would never choose to play a cooperative game. Right now, where I am is I actually prefer cooperative games to competitive games. Now, cooperative games, to be fair, have changed a lot over the years. And we've got some absolutely cracking, fantastic cooperative games. Um, but yeah, so, so my tasting games has changed a lot in that respect. Uh, the other thing is that 10, 15 years ago, I would be scared of any randomness in games. I would be a pure Euro game player and any randomness or dice for resolution, it would bother me so much that it would stop me playing the game. Now, depending on the game, I've learned to embrace that. And there are certain games with roll for resolution that I've been happy to play. Now, I'm not saying that I'm going completely down that. And I still have that feeling if I'm playing a game and you roll a bunch of sixes and kill all of my troops, and I roll a bunch of ones and inflict no damage back, I'll always go away and go, yep, okay, that's why I prefer Euro games. Um, I know that, but there are certain games that I've been able to accept that level of randomness and still enjoy, which 10 or 15 years ago I wouldn't have been able to do. Uh, next question from Deborah. Do my YouTube stats tell me anything about the gender ratio of people watching my videos? And if so, what is it and do I care? So, Deborah, I've actually done a little bit um, of um, looking into this. I'm actually going to pull up a screen. So the first thing is I don't look at my YouTube stats and my analytics. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is I already have a lot of negative feelings about the success of my channel. Um, and when I do look at the analytics, it tells an even uh, bleaker picture. It's not... Um, it doesn't make me feel good when I've put so much work into producing a video to find that 90% of people have switched off within the first two minutes. That, that kind of information that's given to me is demoralizing and disheartening. And unfortunately, a lot of my channel is like that. Um, now some people might say every channel is like that. Okay. But when I do a video that's taken me tens of hours of work and it's had 3,000 views and you might think, oh, 3,000 views is a lot. 
when other comparable channels to mine are getting 30,000 views. And then when you see that actually there's probably only 200 people that have watched that video, it, it, it can be a bit demoralizing. So generally speaking, I don't look at the stats. There's a second reason why I don't look at the stats is that I can't actually do anything about it. And whilst it might be interesting to look at, and we're going to look at it in a minute, and you're going to see it at the same time as I'm going to see it, um, whilst it might be interesting, there's nothing I can do about it. Now, the interesting question, and, and I've, been, I've been struggling to work out how to answer this, because Deborah has said, do I care? And it's not that I don't care, it's just the fact that I can't do anything about it. Now, as I say, we're going to have a look in a minute, but there's one stat that I have seen on my channel, and that is that 90% of the people that watch my channel, and, and this is Deborah's specific question, the gender ratio of people watching my videos. The ratio is not as I would like it, um, but what can I do about it? So it's not that I don't care about it, but what exactly can I do to make my channel more friendly for women to watch the channel. I, I, I don't know, there's nothing I can do. I produce the content that I produce, as far as I'm concerned, I produce the content for everybody. And my, the content that I produce is not aimed at a specific gender, it's aimed at everybody. So there's not much I can do about it. Anyway, let, let's head on over to these stats. Hopefully I've pressed the right button. Okay, so what I'm gonna show you now is we're gonna go in and we're not going to spend too long on this because this was just a question, but we're going to look into where is the analytics. So I don't really know where it is. <laughs> I think it's in, I think it's in YouTube studio. Is it going to go in? Yeah, here we go. Analytics. Right. So here's the analytics for my channel. Um, and one of the things that you can see here is this estimated revenue. Now, for those people who don't know, I donate every single penny of my advertising revenue to charity. Um, and I've not actually announced this yet, but just so you know, last month, uh, all of my advertising revenue went to support the current crisis in uh, Turkey and Syria. Uh, and we've given money to charities that are basically supporting disaster relief over there. So that that's where the advertising revenue goes. I don't make a single penny from advertising revenue on uh, YouTube. I, I wish more content creators would do this even just once a year, um, but I do it every single month. So yeah, so that's that's where the money goes. Uh, and the reason I'm able to do that is because of the Patreon supporters. The financial support that I get from the Patreon campaign is enough for me, and therefore I, I am able to do this. So it makes me feel good. Anyway, um, back onto the analytics. Uh, where is it? I think it's audience. Here we go. So we've got 36,000 returning viewers, 84,000 unique viewers, uh, and we've had 719 subscribers in the last 28 days. That is a lot more than normal. Normally I get about 400 subscribers a month. Um, when your viewers are on YouTube, okay. Subscriber, bell notifications, watch time from YouTubes, age and gender. Here we go. Right. So uh, in the last 28 days, female viewers are 9.1% of my viewers and male is 90.9%. So I'd actually seen that before. Uh, and as I say, I would like it to be higher. But what can I do? There is 
absolutely no control I have over that. Now, some people might say you need to get more women on the show. Um, and, I, and I've heard this said before. Um, the, the problem with that is there are a number of women that I know that play games. Uh, some of them, like at the local club that I go to, it's about a 50-50 mix, which is great. Of those women that I know in the local area that play games, most of them I don't know well enough to invite them back to my house. Most of them are just women who go to a local games club. I'm not going to say, oh, would you like to come back to my house and play a game and be live on the channel? Because I'd be doing it in order to, you know, answer the critics who say you don't have enough women on the channel. Um, the other thing is that um, there's a lot of um, women that I know that have been on the channel. So Gemma's been on the channel quite a few times. Emily's been on the channel a few times. Emily doesn't like to be on camera, but she is on the streams now and again. So it, it does happen, but I work with what I've got. When I invite people to come round on a Friday night to play games, that invite goes out to a lot of people and I, you know, I'm not in control of who comes round and says yes. So I do invite a number of women to be on the channel, but you know, a lot of them don't feel comfortable, don't feel comfortable doing it. Um, the ages as well, this is probably, yeah, so 3.6%, uh, 18 to 24. So the majority of people are between 35 and 44 years old. I'd have thought that was would be a bit lower. Um, but anyway, we, we can look into this a lot more um, later on. As I say, it's not something I've really looked at. This is another one that's interesting, the top geographies. So 32% of my viewers are from the United States. I would have thought that would be higher and only 10% of my views are from the UK. I would have thought that would be higher as well. Um, but if we just expand that, oh gosh, what have we got here? So yeah, United States is uh, was 32%, United Kingdom, 10%, Canada, Germany, Poland, and then Australia. That's, that's members of the Board Game Barbecue podcast probably. Uh, Netherlands, Sweden, France, Belgium, Spain, Italy. Wh wh what's what's down at the bottom? <laughs> so uh, 32 people watched from North Macedonia. There you go. Right. Anyway, there's there's a little look at the analytics. I hope that was um, that was interesting and useful. Thank you very much, Deborah, for the for the answer. And I hope have have hope I've answered it uh, as well as I could without saying the wrong thing. Right. Next thing from Brian. Uh, Brian noticed that my videos now start with a, a new sound and a new graphic. What's the story behind that? Yes, so I've been wanting a new loading screen for the channel for over a year. Um, and I finally got round to sorting one out um, at the end of last year. And I really wanted to do it before the Frosthaven videos. Uh, there is a story behind it. First of all, um, I was starting to go off my original one. Uh, and also it was 15 seconds long. And in an effort to try and improve... Um, the, the, the number of views and engagement on the channel. A lot of people have said that you don't want a long intro. Any intro more than five seconds and people switch off. People just aren't interested. You've got to get into the information and you've got to get into the video as soon as you can. So you want a short intro screen. So this has been on my mind for a long time. Uh, and one of my patron supporters, Kelly, is her husband who actually did that new loading screen. Uh, so we worked on it together, but he's the one who actually created that. Uh, and then I got a sound from somewhere else. Uh, I'm really happy with it. I like it. And it is only a few seconds long. Um, and you'll notice that the format of my videos is now, hi, my name's Paul Grogan, and here's what I'm going to do. Then the loading screen comes on. Then we get into the detail. Whereas in the past, it used to be loading screen first, 
and then it, it jumped into the detail. Um, it, it's just one of those things that I've been trying to do to try and improve the channel. I've been improving the lighting, I've been improving the quality, the extra cameras, I've been improving the audio, and I've done that as well. It's not had any difference, it's not made any difference to the channel, but I'm happier with it, and that's 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 the main thing. Um, oh, I've just realised when we get to the next question that there's something we didn't do when we went shopping. Rats. Anyway, Brian Robson has got a question, and... This question is going to appear on the guild. So every so often in these live Q&As, if I get a question that I think is a really good question, what we do is we turn it into a question for the guild. Uh, so Chrissy, if you wouldn't mind turning this into a question on the guild. And as I mentioned earlier on, if you join the guild, subscribe to the guild, you will see this question on there. I want to know what your answer to this is. But Brian's question is, he says, our group played Champions of Midgard recently with the Valhalla expansion. We all agreed that the game without the expansion isn't nearly as good. So he rates the base game a 6.5 and the expansion brings it up to a 9. Now for me, when he said the game without the expansion isn't nearly as good, he said nearly, but if he rates the base game a 6.5, 6.5 for me is unplayable. I don't ever want to play anything that I rate less than a 7 out of 10 because I've got 500 games that I rate at least 7 out of 10. But the expansion brings it to a 9. So the question is, what expansions do you think are essential for getting the best out of a game? And I'm going to go one more, and I'm going to say, what is your rating of the game before, and what is your rating of the game afterwards? Now, Brian has said, please do not include Terraforming Mars with the Prelude expansion, because that is the obvious one. 99% of uh, the people... Uh, I've spoken to have said never play Terraforming Mars without the Prelude expansion because it makes it a lot better. So not counting that, what game do you think plays better with the expansion? And if you've got multiple, I want to know what the one is that has the biggest difference. So for example, we spoke to Mark and Sally on Saturday, Saturday, uh, and I said that this was one of the questions that I'd been asked, and they said Lost Ruins of Arnak. Absolutely. And I was surprised by that. Now, for me, Lost Ruins of Arnak is better with the expansion, but Lost Ruins of Arnak is a fantastic game anyway. So yes, the expansion makes it better. Same with Feast for Odin. Feast for Odin is a fantastic game. Norwegians makes it better. But going back to what Brian said, Brian rates the base game of Champions of Midgard as a 6.5. And he rates it with the expansion a 9. So that, that's kind of what I want to know. Which game turns a game which is a lowish rating into a high rating with the expansion. So thank you very much, Brian, for that question. Um, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read through the answers on the guild over the next few days, and then I might contribute with my own, because I've got a few ideas of my own. Next question also from Brian. He says, uh, I may understandably want to take the diplomatic approach and not answer this question, but have I had any seriously negative feedback from publishers or designers who have asked you to cover their game, but you refused because you didn't think the game was good enough. So I'm, I'm more than happy to answer that question because it hasn't really happened. Now, I get uh, a number of messages from various designers and publishers uh, wanting me to cover their game. I've had two today, just, just to give you an idea. Um, some of them are clearly I'm on a list and they say, hi, gaming rules team. We love the work that you do we'd like to send you a copy of our new game for you to cover on your channel. And I'm like, 
so you, you, you've no idea who I am. I mean, you want to send me a game, great, but you're looking for a review video? Yeah, I don't, I don't really do that. So I get a few of those and 99% of the time they, they, they just, they're a no. Um, but I do get a number of people saying we, you know, we're happy to sponsor a video. We want to, we want a how to play video. In fact, the one that I had today, early this morning was a request from somebody with a game that they've designed that is being published and it's coming out next year or later this year. And they wanted a how to play video for the game. Um, so I took a look at the game, but I, I went back to them and I said, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not going to be able to fit this in. Now I would very, very rarely, if ever, and to be honest, I probably never would go back to a publisher and say, I think your game is bad. What I would say is, I'm sorry, but I don't think the game is a good fit for my channel. Now, it's actually quite funny because some of these emails I get, they clearly have no idea what kind of games I cover on the channel. You know, I'll get some weird, silly, fun party drinking game and they say, oh, we think this would be a great fit for your channel. And I actually go back to these people in a possibly passive aggressive way and say, oh, you think that a silly, fun party drinking game would be good for my channel, do you? Well, you know, it's interesting that you think that. What games have I covered on my channel which which you think are comparable to this one? In other words, look, you haven't done your research. I know you haven't done your research and, and you're like, it's just, and I go back to them. I basically turn it round on them because um, they're not people I ever want to hear from again, to be, to be honest. Um, so yeah, have I had an negative feedback? So the, the, no, generally speaking, people come back to me and they they understand. Um, there was one that um, I turned down recently and I turned it down for two reasons. And the first one was I didn't have time to fit the work in. But the second one is that um, I actually posted about this game. So every so often when I get a request from a publisher to cover a game, I will actually ask my patron supporters on the Slack channel. Um, and I will say, look, I've had this request to cover such and such a game. I don't know anything about it. What do you all think about it? Um, because ultimately, as I mentioned earlier on, it's the patron supporters that, that keep this channel going. And I want to produce content that they want to see. And if I get an offer from a publisher about a game and literally everybody says, no, don't cover it. We're not interested. Nobody's interested in this game whatsoever. Then I, I'm unlikely to cover it unless I really want to. Um, and there was one particular game where the theme of the game was something which made some people feel a little uncomfortable. And then when they explained it to me, it made me feel a little uncomfortable. So I actually went back to the publisher and I actually, I actually explained that. I said, look, I don't think this is a good fit for me and the channel uh, because of these reasons. And, th and they totally understood that. So yeah, I've not had any uh, real negative feedback on that. Um, right, next questions. So uh, apologies in advance, Brian, but we did have a plan today to go shopping because he's first of all asking, have we tried any coconut macaroon chocolate hobnobs? I haven't, but they sound amazing. Um, and we made a point of saying, next time we go shopping, let's see if we can find some. Um, if you're in the UK, have a look. They are coconut macaroon chocolate hobnobs and they sound fantastic. The next question from Brian, and this is a, this is a vitally important question that I'm so surprised has not actually made the BBC News headlines because it is very, very important to the well-being of our country as a whole. And it's about the shortage of Fox's classics in supermarkets. Um, he says he can't seem to find them. So we were going to go shopping to see if we could find some and then we we're going to buy them and we we're going to show them. Uh, even though we're trying to eat a bit healthier, Fox's classics are amazing. So no, we, we haven't had a look, Brian, but this is a question for the chat. If you're watching this video live, 
or if you're watching this video back afterwards, the next time you go to your supermarket, see if you can find a packet of Fox's Classics and then leave me a comment and let me know if you can because, um, yeah, Brian has noticed a shortage in his area. Right, next question. From Kay, uh, do I recommend Spiel winners? Uh, have I ever disagreed with the games chosen? She was personally disappointed by Palio and Living Forest. So every year, one of the awards, the most prestigious award in the board gaming industry hobby is the Spiel des Jahres Award, which is the German Game of the Year Award. Um, there is the Spiel des Jahres Award, but there is also the Kenner Spiel des Jahres and there's the Kinderspiel des Jahres. So they used to, back in the day, there used to only be one award, which was the Game of the Year, but then they branched out and they sort of had the, the slightly more complex Game of the Year and then the Kids' Game of the Year. Now, because I've been a gamer for a long time, I was a big follower of the Spiel des Jahres. And if you look at the list of Spiel des Jahres winners, if, you're not, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it. Just Google list of Spiel des Jahres winners. If you look back into the... 80s and 90s, there are some cracking games that have won the Spiel des Jahres. And I'm just going to pull them up on screen now because I want to remind myself what they are. Um, I think El Grande won, for example, in 1995. Um, and I've actually been to the Spiel des Jahres Awards once, which was a bit of an honour. Um, awards and nominees, where are we? There should be a full list somewhere. Yeah, this only goes back to... No, here we go. Right. Uh, so it started in 1979 with Hare and Tortoise, then Rummy Cub. Um, Railway Rivals won in 1984. I had a copy of that. Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective won it in 1985. Um, Settlers of Catan won it in 95. El Grande won it in 96. Elfenland won it in 98. Tikal, 99. Torres, 2000. Okay. But... In 1997, a game called Mississippi Queen won it, and we got it because it won the Spiel des Jahres Award, and we played it, and I was like, seriously? This is not very good. Um, because I felt Mississippi Queen was way too light compared to other similar winners of the Spiel des Jahres around that time. And then Carcassonne won in 2001 and I was again massively disappointed and then Villa Paletti won in 2002 at which point I went off the Spiel des Jahres awards completely um however there have been if, you're, if I'm looking at the list there have been some really good winners uh, Alhambra is a really good game Ticket to Ride uh, Thurnum Taxes is a good game Dominion possibly deserved the Spiel des Jahres Kingdom Builder I really like um but the Spiel des Jahres awards now if you look at the last few years winners Codenames, King Domino, Azul, Just One, Pictures, Micro Macro Crime City, I'd forgotten that one, and Cascadia. A lot of the Spiel des Jahres winners are for borderline mass market German family games. Games that are going to sell massively. Um, so I actually agree most of the time these days with the Spiel des Jahres uh, winners and I do generally recommend them there are definitely some there that I highly recommend Codenames, King Domino, Azul, Just One, Pictures, Micro Macro Crime City we've not played Cascadia but other than that the last five or six years worth I absolutely agree that those games fit the category of what the Spiel des Jahres is when you look at the Connoisseurs games of the year which is the Kenner Spiel des Jahres Living Forest, Palio, The Crew Quest for Planet Nine, Wingspan, Quacks for Quedlinburg, 
exit the the you know the general yeah some of those i'm not sure about i mean isle of sky is a fantastic game istanbul is good as well so yeah some i disagree with some i don't disagree with uh um yeah some i agree with some i disagree with um but generally speaking yeah i will go on and and recommend them the children's games of the year i i don't generally look at those um anyway there you go i'm, I'm probably spending a lot longer answering these questions than we've got time for <laughs> uh let's go back to the questions right so joanna is asking have i done a playthrough of caverna she couldn't find one on youtube no i haven't um so i've played caverna a lot but when i got caverna this was pre-gaming rules so i've got caverna i've i've had caverna since it came out i've played it loads but i've never actually covered it on the channel and right now i'm playing it a lot on board game arena so there is a fantastic implementation of caverna on board game arena uh, and that's how I'm playing it. And I'm actually in a game of it at the moment. So would I cover it on the channel? Absolutely, I would cover it on the channel. Um, it's just, you know, like like a lot of things, if I had time, I'd, you know, take a year off work and play through every game that I had in my collection. But no, it's a fantastic game, Caverna. I don't have any of the expansions for it. I've only got the base game of Caverna. Um, next question is from Mark. And he's asking me to do a Highlander. Now, he did warn me about this. He told me on Saturday. He said, I've got a really good question for you. Um, so he's basically imagined living in three dimensions where Stefan Feld, Uwe Rosenberg and Alexander Pfister, each designer exists in each one or exist only in each one. And in each, you play the games only from that designer. Which dimension would be the one that I choose? In other words... Which is my favourite designer out of those three? Well, no, actually, Mark's going one further. Mark is Mark is saying it's like it's like the kiss, marry, avoid thing, whatever. But he's basically saying, pick one of those three designers and destroy all games from the other two designers as if they don't exist. And he's being really cruel because he knows that those three designers are three of my favourite designers. Right, Stefan Feld, love his games. Got more of his games in my collection than anybody else. Uwe Rosenberg. So I've, I've loved a lot of Uwe Rosenberg games. And in the last 12 months, I've been going back to Uwe Rosenberg games. I've been playing Feast for Odin again. I've been playing Caverna again. I've been playing Agricola again. I've been playing Atua a lot solo recently. Uh, and Alexander Fister has designed two of my favourite games, Maracaibo, Great Western Trail. But he's also done Isle of Sky, which is fantastic. Uh, he's done a lot of games. So it's a really cruel question. And... I don't know. What what do people in the chat think? Of those three designers, if only one of them could exist, which one would it be? Because to be honest, I'm I'm having bad feelings even just thinking about it. If I pick Stefan Feld, what we're saying is that I can never play an Uwe Rosenberg or an Alexander Pfister game again. If I pick Uwe Rosenberg, I can't play a Stefan Feld game again. And if I pick Alexander Pfister, I can't play a Stefan Feld. It, it's just a cruel, cruel question. I think we need to take Mark off the Christmas card list. I think definitely. Um, I I I I don't know if I can answer the question. I, it's really hard. So the only thing I can think of is that if I put all Stefan Feld games, all Uwe Rosenberg games, and all Alexander Pfister games that I've played into Pub Meeple and rank them against each other which ones come out the highest because i was really surprised when i did my rating my entire collection that there were no stefan feld games in my top 10 not a single one and that was really surprising to me um 
Whereas I think Caverna was in there, Feast for Odin was in the, in the top nine anyway. Caverna was in there, Feast for Odin was in there, Maracaibo was in there, and Great Western Trail was in there. So what what's the chat telling me? Uh, Brendan is telling me to, to roll a d6. Yeah, I could I could do a d6. Uh, Brett is struggling to answer the question as well. Um, Deborah saying Uve, even though you dislike lots of his games, yeah, I, th that that's the thing. Uve has done some amazing games that I really enjoy, but he's also done some games which I'm not really that keen on. Whereas Alexander Pfister might have done a couple that I wasn't keen on. Stefan Feld, I think I like 90% of Feld games. So, yeah, Mike is telling me that Alexander Pfister would win. I mean, Alex so out of the three, Alexander Pfister's games are probably heavier, if we if we think about Great Western Trail and Maracaibo. I might have to come back to that one. I'll, I'll come back to that one later, i.e. forget about it and hopefully nobody notices. Right, next question from Angus. In my videos, sometimes I mention that some of my games are in the attic and some of them are in the garage. Yes. Do I have any criteria of which games will go in there? Attic stroke garage. It's a very good question, Angus, and I'm glad somebody's paying attention to these little comments that I make. So I have two main areas where games are stored. First of all, there is the hobby room, um, which is where the main games collection is. And then we have the studio. In the studio, I have a bookshelf there with games on. I have a shelf up there and I have two Kallaxes in the corners with games on. So any games which I'm going to be playing or think I might play in the immediate future go in one of those two areas. But there is limited space. So when I start to run out of space, I go into the hobby room, not generally the studio. The studio tends to have games in it that I'm probably going to play soon-ish. Uh, so I'll go into the hobby room and I'll look through and I will look at them and I'll basically just pick which of these 10 games am I unlikely to play in the next year and they go up in the attic. Now, the attic is kind of like, um, it's kind of like a twilight area because games that get moved into the attic very rarely come down from the attic unless they're going to get rid of. So it's kind of a, a place where I'm thinking, okay, I, I don't like you enough. You're going to go in the attic. But essentially, that is, the, that is the step towards me getting rid of them. Now, there are some games in the attic um, which I'm never going to get rid of. So my original copy of Through the Ages that I bought in 2006 for 30 euros, first edition printing of Through the Ages, that's in the attic and that's never been sold. That That's staying in the attic. So certain games go in the attic just because, look, it's going up there. I'm not going to play it again, but I'm not going to get rid of it. Yeah. Yes, Paul's Attic is where, <laughs> where games go to die. Uh, next question from Stuart. Um, I did mention during the Cuzco filming, and we chatted about this on the Slack channel as well, I think. But Stuart wants to know what happens with prototype games that I receive. Does it depend uh, if the game is essentially completed and just the odd tweaks to tokens or rulebook format versus a more playtest format? So generally speaking, um, most of the time, if I have worked on a game professionally, either I've done the rulebook for it or I've done a video for it or something like that, as part of the agreement of that work, unless I didn't like the game, I would request a copy of the final game from the publisher. So what happens to the prototypes? Well, some prototypes actually get moved on. So the Cuzco prototype, that went back to Queen Games because they needed it to take to the Nuremberg Fair to show people. 
Um, I've recently done a video playthrough for uh, a game called An Age Contrived. It's not on the channel yet, unless you're a patron supporter, uh, where you can see it. Um, I'll be making it live when the Kickstarter goes live later this week. But I had a prototype of that game in the house, and that got sent on to another content creator in France. So sometimes we'll get copies of these prototypes and we'll move them on. Sometimes you're at the end of the chain and I've collected a number of prototypes of games over the years and then, you know, I keep them for six months or nine months or a year. In fact, there were some prototypes I had in the attic that had been there for four years and in a recent clear out, I found all of these old prototypes and I'm like, well, I feel kind of guilty throwing these away because somebody has spent hours cutting out all of these components, printing these out, but ultimately there's no point in me keeping them. So they all just get recycled. I de-sleeve the cards and I reuse the sleeves, um, but otherwise everything, everything gets recycled. Any wooden components, I've got a big box, massive box full of wooden generic components for games, meeples, cubes, and everything else. Um, but yeah, I end up, I end up just having to throw them away and recycle them because there's no need for them. Um, and you might think, well, why don't I give them to somebody? You know, why, why don't I say, look, here, have a prototype copy of this game. A, I'm probably not allowed to do that, but also I'm giving you a rubbish copy of the game that isn't finished, that has changed, and, and a lot of the things have changed. And yeah, so yeah, generally get rid of them. Next question from Stuart. Um, when he started watching the Vienna game, he felt it was quite thematic with the whole spy Cold War concept. But as gameplay progressed, the theme sort of fell away as it was basically go here, get this resource, spend this resource to do this. Are there any games that I feel hold their theme throughout the playthrough? Uh, Frostpunk feels like it might be one of them. Yeah, so I'm very honest with my uh, with my thoughts on theming game. And I just want to, for those people who don't know, um, I have a, a distinction between the setting and the theme. So for me, the setting is fairly obvious. It, it's the setting of the game. Whatever the game is, the setting that the game is in. For me, what theme means is whether the, uh, the mechanisms of the game fit with the theme of the game. And I also want to say, and 90% of you watching this video will, will already know this, but I don't need a game with theme to enjoy it. One of the most themeless games out there is a game uh, from Craneo Creations called Newton. Now, Newton has a setting. The setting is that you're all researchers doing inventions or... It right, doesn't matter. That, that's the setting. There's no theme in the game whatsoever. That, the, the setting of the game could literally be anything. What you're doing is standard Euro game stuff. You are taking actions, you are gaining resources, you're moving up tracks, you're doing all of that stuff. And that's that's like a lot of Euro games. And it actually bothers me a little bit when a number, when a lot of other content creators say that, oh, the game's got a really strong theme and the theme really comes across well in the game. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's one of those things. Now, as I say, I don't mind playing games with no theme. I have absolutely no problems playing games with no theme. But it strikes me as odd when people find theme where there isn't actually any theme. Okay? Now, you can have a nice setting. You can have nice artwork. You can have all of that. But unless 
the actual mechanisms in the game fit with the actual theme itself, then it isn't a thematic game. Anyway, are there any games that hold their theme through the playthrough? Frostpunk feels like it might be one. Absolutely. Frostpunk very, very much feels f through the whole game that, that that is an extremely thematic game um, because the actions that you're doing in the game they fit you know you've got to feed your people you've got to go out and gather food and if you don't feed your people they get hungry and then if you don't feed them the next day they get angry because they weren't fed and all of it, it all fits together it's a very very thematic game um so yeah there's there's lots of examples of thematic games but most of the games that i play have a setting but there isn't actually much theme in the game most of the games that i play most of the games that i cover on the channel um anyway let's let's have a let's have a scroll down we could talk about this i'm happy to have another discussion about this uh maybe on the bgg guild or something like that and i can maybe explain it a bit more and get other people's thoughts um next question uh, also from stuart does learning to play a well implemented game on something like board game arena make it harder to play the game in person because the platform enforces the rules or gives you your options for example, Seven Wonders on Board Game Arena tells you what actions that you can take or what you could do. Now, I play games on Board Game Arena that I already know how to play. So for me, the, the uh, enhanced interface with certain games where it actually restricts the choices that I have, that, that is great for me because I already know the game. But... I absolutely agree with you. If you don't know a game that well and you are being taught how to play a game using Board Game Arena or an app or something else and suddenly it is restricting the choices that you've got or, or certain options are greyed out and you don't understand why they're greyed out, then that's going to impede your learning. Now, I would strongly recommend if you are learning to play a game on Board Game Arena, you do it with somebody who knows how to play the game, you play it live and you have a voice chat over Discord or something like that with them while you're doing it. Because otherwise, I, I, I can imagine playing a game on Board Game Arena, and I think I've probably done it myself, where I'm just clicking around and I don't know why it's given me the choices that I'm doing. If you then go and start playing the physical board game, you'd be a bit lost. So yeah, I, I, think, I think it would make it not just harder to play in person, but harder to actually learn how to play the game. Right, next question from Simon. Simon says he's, he's loving the playthroughs that I do with friends, which is great. Uh, he's wondering how much it feels like fun and how much it feels like work. Now, that is a really good question, Simon, because that is something that I actually think about. And I probably discuss it with Vicky quite often about whether it, you know, because ultimately, if I'm doing playthrough videos twice a week, sometimes three times a week in an evening, then that's my evening gone and i have very little free time as it is and if i'm spending two or three nights doing playthrough videos and it actually feels more like work rather than fun then this could be why i'm completely exhausted all of the time is because i'm using what should be fun downtime to do videos now what i will say is that there's uh, obviously videos that I do on the channel which are sponsored by publishers. Um, for those videos, I tend to do a lot more preparation. Uh, like, for example, this Friday, I'm doing a sponsored playthrough of Dice Manor from Arcane Wonders. So I'm having to learn the game. I'm having to practice game. 
uh, practice the game. I'm having to set up all of the cameras, make sure everything's perfect. Uh, then we're doing a practice playthrough in the afternoon and then we're doing the sponsored stream. If it was a fun playthrough like we did last Friday, which was not sponsored in any way, um, we just get the game out and we start playing it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be perfect. The cameras don't have to be perfect because nobody's paying for the video. I mean, I want to make it as good as possible for the people that are watching it, but there, there is a big difference. Now, what I wanted to say is that me doing a live stream, and don't get me wrong, I love doing the live streams and those of you that watch along either afterwards and leave me a comment uh, or if you're watching live, it gives me such a kick and it gives me such an enjoyment, the fact that I'm producing this content that people are enjoying watching. It's quite a bit of extra work. So on the rare occasions where I get to play a game and I'm not streaming it, it's actually really easy because all you do is you just sit in there and you're playing a game. But as soon as you're live streaming it, I've got to control all of the buttons. I've got to keep an eye on the audio. I've got to make sure the lighting is correct. There's so much extra overhead. Um, and I know, I know a lot of you, and a lot of you are Patreon supporters of mine, you know how much work goes on behind the scenes for those videos. But if you're watching this live Q&A now, uh, and you're thinking, well, you know, why does Paul need a Patreon campaign? Because all he's doing is he's playing games with friends. Well, it, it, as I say, it's quite a few, it's a couple of hours maybe to set the studio up, get everything ready, set up all of the cameras, make sure everything's, because my cameras move around. You know, the camera that's normally in the ceiling is right now there. So I have to move things around. Even this Q&A is taking me an hour to, you know, prepare and get everything ready for it. Um, so I enjoy doing them, but there is an extra level of stress stroke overhead with doing a live stream. When it's a sponsored video, there's even more stress and overhead because I'm thinking, I'm being paid for this. I need to make sure this is as good as I can I, I can do. Anyway, going back to the question, <laughs> how much of it feels like fun and how much of it feels like work? Thankfully, most of it feels like fun. There are, there have been certain occasions where I haven't enjoyed it as much and it's felt like work, but on the whole, I enjoy playing games and I try and be a bit selective about the games that I'm playing. So on the whole, I am tending to have fun while I'm doing it. But once the cameras stop rolling and once I've pressed that button and the stream is finished, I'm absolutely drained because the it, it's a lot of pressure, especially for a long stream. Um, you know, you put your body and your mind into a certain position and then after it's finished, quite often I'll crash and I'll just lose all of my energy. Um, anyway, Simon says, I think we all really appreciate everything that goes behind the scenes to make these videos and how much time and effort you put into them. Yep. Uh, but I'm sure sometimes you just want to play a game with no strings. Um, now and again, I mean, this Thursday I'm going to the local games club and I'm going to play a game. But to be honest, as I say, I get such a kick out of doing the live streams, even though it's extra work. Um, I, I do enjoy doing it. So yeah, big thank you to everybody who, who watches. Right. Next question from Andy Pelton. Uh, this is following on from Mark's Highlander question earlier on. What is my favourite Kramer versus Kiesling game? Now, I apologise, Andy. Uh, I ran out of time this afternoon. I was going to have a look um, at all of the Kramer versus Kramer and Kiesling. Kramer versus Kiesling sounds like a TV show. Um, Kramer and Kiesling games. They are a great design duo. I have played a lot of their games together, but I can't quite remember which ones I've got and which ones are my favourite. Excuse me, still got this 
annoying cough. Um, if people in the chat want to just put the name of some Kramer and Kiesling games that they know that I like, then let me know. I'll try and keep an eye on the chat and um, yeah, I'll, I'll pick one of those. Certainly My Abbey, which came out a few years ago, I think that's a Kramer and Kiesling game. My Abbey is very good. Uh, Palaces of Carrara was good, but I think My Abbey better. Um, but anyway, yeah, let, let put, put some names of Kramer and Kiesling games in the chat and I'll let you know which one is my favourite because they've been designing games together for uh, over 20 years, a very long time. Um, next question from Andy is, and I'm going to have to look this up because he's, what is my favourite game by the late Sergei Leget? Or Leget. So I, 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 I've not heard of them. French board game designer, unfortunately passed away in January 2023. Um, let's have a look. Let's have a look. Uh, what games has he designed? Right, so according to this, there are 35 games on the list that he's linked to as a designer. Uh, one of them is Cargo Noir, which I've heard of. Another one is the Artemis Odyssey. Um, Mare Nostrum was his. Okay, I wasn't keen on that. Um, Mystery Express. Mystery of the Abbey. I've not played that. Uh, oh, there is one there that I've heard of, which is on Board Game Arena. Uh, Nidevela. Nidev I, need, I need Hilmar to tell me how it's pronounced. Uh, but I've heard that's good. Um, but I've not played that. Uh, Senji, no, oh Shadows of Camelot. He designed Shadows of Camelot, which was broken unless you got the expansion that fixed it. Um, so you know, I don't. Oh, he's he's down as the designer of Ad Astra. I didn't realise he was the designer of Ad Astra. Bruno Feduti and Sergei Leget um, designed Ad Astra. Now Ad Astra, I've played once and I thought was fantastic. So I'm going to go with that one. I don't own the game. Um, but I, I, I have played it once and I thought it was extremely good and I don't know anybody who's who's got it. So anyway, that's that's what I'm going to go with. Anyway, back to the chat. Uh, is Mage Knight, Kramer and Keesling? Yes, I think it is. Paris. Paris is good. Uh, Watergate. I don't think Watergate is Kramer and Keesling. I thought Watergate was... I'm going to embarrass myself here. Maybe it was one of them. Yeah, no. Watergate is Matthias Kramer. Um, Palaces of Carrara, yeah, Tikal. Nauticus, I've not played Nauticus. Uh, Colosseum is apparently. Uh, yeah, Tikal. Uh, the Old Cusco is Maharaja. Uh, not sure. Yeah, I might have to have a think about that one. Um, and finally, what is my opinion on their Mask trilogy of games? Okay, so yes, so they designed, and I have all of these. So in the other room, I have the original version of Tikal, the original version of Mexica, and the original version of Java, which apparently has been renamed Cusco. Um, so I have all of those three games because um, I got Tikal when it when I started getting really seriously into board games in like late 90s, 98, 99. Uh, Tikal had just come out, so Tikal was one of the first board games that um, I ever got, really. Um, and Therefore, I got Mexica because it was the next one in the series. And then I got Java. Um, all three of them are designed by Kramer and Kiesling, and they all share a common mechanism, which is that you've got on your turn a certain number of action points to use. 
and you use those action points to take actions, which is a little bit of an old school mechanism now because it can lead to some long turns and a lot of downtime as players are working out how am I going to spend my 10 action points. Whereas a lot of modern games are like, right, it's your go, take a turn, your go, take a turn, your go, take a turn. Um, so I back in the day, I've played all three of them a lot. I've played Tikal a lot. I've played Mexico a lot. I've played Java a lot. Java is probably the more heavier one, I think. Mexico is probably my favorite. Tikal was probably a little uh, more lighter and more family friendly, but I liked all of them. I liked all of the games. Next question from Andy, which sci-fi stroke fantasy book series would you like to see made into either, I assume this is a TV series or a movie? Now, I'm not a big reader of uh, many books. Um, I don't really read that much. I listen to some audio books, but again, not, not as much as I'd like. Um, and if you'd have asked me this question a couple of years ago, it would have been the Foundation Trilogy, because the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov um, is probably my favourite trilogy of books. Uh, I just love the Foundation Trilogy. Not so much the other 57 books that came after that, but the Foundation Trilogy has now been turned into a TV series, which I've not seen yet. If you have seen it, is it any good? Let me know. Um, other sci-fi fantasy books. I mean, we both like the Robin Hobb books. So shall we say, is that an easy one? Because so many, so many books have now been turned into a TV series or film. You know, Lord of the Rings has been done. Sword of Shannara was, was awful. Really didn't like the Sword of Shannara TV series at all. Um, Magician is another book that I read when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, as I say, I've not really read that many. And a lot of the ones that I have read have already now become TV series, you know, like Game of Thrones or something like this. Um, so he says he's, he'd quite like to see Peter F. Hamilton's Commonwealth Saga made into a series or some novels of Ian M. Banks, the player of games against the dark background. See, none of that means anything to me. I'm, I'm somewhat uncultured when it comes to, uh, to, to, to good books. Next question from Roger. I've mentioned that I'm a Sherlock Holmes fan, which I am. Which version do I prefer? The original? e.g. the books or the Granada TV series or the new BBC Sherlock or something else. And apart from Holmes, who's my favourite character? So I grew up uh, in the 70s and 80s watching the old black and white Basil Rathbone uh, Sherlock Holmes things. That's what got me interested in Sherlock Holmes when I was a kid. Uh, and then I got the collection of short stories and I used to read the short stories. Um, I've got the complete works of Sherlock Holmes, read, read lots of them, but it, it was the Basil Rathbone films which got me interested in Sherlock Holmes. Now, going back, I think they were pretty awful at, you know, looking at them back, and it was the Granada TV series with Jeremy Brett, which I think is still the best. Now, it's almost unwatchable these days because it's very true to the uh, original stories, and it can be very drawn out and very slow and very boring. It's not really suitable for modern television. I think people like me, if if the if they decided to re-put uh, put put that series back on TV, I'd watch it and I'd enjoy it, but I think the views would be low because it was made for its era. The new version with um, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, I think is fantastic because it has updated Sherlock Holmes to a modern era. And I think certainly season one and season two, they did a very, very good job. I think season three and season four, 
lost its way a bit. And I think season four was a bit disappointing. It was just a bit nonsense and a bit all, yeah. Um, but certainly season one and season two of the BBC Sherlock, I thought was, was fantastic. Who's my favourite character apart from Holmes himself? I mean, there's a lot of very good characters. Um, and, of course, the characters have been played very differently in each sort of representation of them. So um, I'm thinking I'm thinking Moriarty in the BBC series is obviously very different from the Moriarty in the films and very different from Moriarty uh, in the original Granada. Because one thing that a lot of uh, people who are not Sherlock Holmes fans don't realise is that Moriarty only really appears in one Sherlock Holmes story. But he's made out to be Sherlock Holmes' arch nemesis. So every, every adaptation of Sherlock Holmes afterwards has always features Moriarty as, as the bad guy. But actually, he only appeared in one, one original story uh, and was kind of mentioned in the Red-Headed League, I think. Um, but oh, um, the, other, the, the films as well with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. I thought I thought they were fantastic. Can't wait for the third one. So I thought the, the, the films were good, very good. I'm not sure who my favourite character is, actually. I might have to go with um, Irene Adler um, just because she's a very interesting character. Right, next question from Neil. Uh, following on tangentially, have I played, stroke read, any of the Van Ryder game series of graphic novel adventures? Regardless of the answer, do I have any thoughts on them? So let me tell you a story. When the first series of the Van Ryder Games graphic novel adventures uh, was announced, I was very interested and very excited to the point where I actually forked out $100 to buy them. I had to go all the way to a convention to buy them because you couldn't get them in the UK. Um, and I actually gave AJ $100 and I bought the first season and they are up there. And I've been wanting for the last, what, two and a half, three years to play them. And we've spent about 10 minutes playing one of them. And that's it. So, yeah, I I really want to play them. I've been wanting to play them for such a long time. Um, but we just, it's one of those things that we haven't got round to. Um, but there's now like three series, I think. And there's a Sherlock Holmes one in each series. And one of those is Sherlock Holmes. Um, but yeah, one, one, definitely want to try them out. The one that we tried was the Captive, which didn't grip me um, from the 10, 15 minutes that we played. You were just walking around a house, turning from one page to the next. Um, whereas the Your Town, I really want to play that one. That looks really interesting. So yeah, I haven't really touched on them, but I do want to play them. Next question from Davis. Uh, have I heard anything about the new AEG game, Rolling Heights? Any consideration of covering as either a patron or a publisher-sponsored playthrough? So yes, I have heard about it um, because there are some of my patron supporters on my Slack channel who have got the game and have been playing the game and posting pictures about it. So it looks interesting. Um, however, I no longer have any relationship with AEG. I used to have a really good relationship with AEG um, and they used to be a client. I, I've done work for them. I've done uh, rulebook work for them in the past. Um, I'm the one who wrote the rulebook for Dead Reckoning um, and things like that. So I've, I've done work for them professionally in the past, but then they had a change of marketing department. And when they changed their marketing team, I got removed from the list. And since then, I've had no contact with AEG at all. Um, so the chance of me, I mean, to be honest, I could write to them 
if if I wanted to, but I'm in a situation where I'm still battling against the the constant incoming of new games and not enough time to cover them all. So whilst Rolling Heights does look nice and I think it by John Declare, and I'm a fan of John Declare, and to be honest, me and John are friends. If I was to reach out to John and say, can you prod AEG and get them to send me a copy of Rolling Heights? They probably would, but then I would have another game to cover on the channel. And it, again, it's a case of fitting them all in. Um, next question from James. What's the best implementation of a mechanism that you've seen in a board game that made you go, wow, that's clever. Why didn't anyone else think of this? It's a good question. And the way that you've written the question with the words that you use, I think I say that quite a lot. I get excited about playing new games on a regular basis. And there's so many times every year that games have come out where I've gone, oh, you know, that's that's really clever. You know, why hasn't anybody else done that? Um, I can't think of anything offhand because I have this all the time. So let, let's think about games that I've played recently. Games that I've played recently. Actually, this might be a good question for the guild. Yeah, let's turn this into a question for the guild, James. So back onto the guild, guild number 2258 on Board Game Geek. Another question is going to appear very shortly, which is from James, which is what's the best Im implementation of a mechanism that you've seen in a board game that made you go, wow, that's clever. Why didn't anyone else think of this? I will read through other people's answers and then I'll have a think about it myself. Um, one of the things that I did like is in Carnegie, the way that you pull the strips out and they reveal more information and you put the discs on. That's just a really clever way of representing things that are increasing that gives you extra discs and everything else. And ENO Tools graphic design on that game is absolutely perfect. Uh, next question from James. What's your favourite component in a board game that's both aesthetically pleasing and useful? I think I've been asked that question before and I don't think I answered it last time. <laughs> favourite component in a board game that's both aesthetically pleasing and useful? Oh, I don't know. I mean, the, the tower, the generator from Frostpunk is impressive. Um, I mean, it's useful and it is aesthetically pleasing because I like the I like the Frostpunk steampunk style. So I'll go with that one for now. Favourite component in a board game is the is the generator from Frostpunk. Next question from Dan. What board game is popular among hobbyist gamers? So not Monopoly. Do I think is just a bad, bad, bad game? And he's wanting me to upset people here. I mean, he's not just said a bad game. He's not just said a bad, bad game. He said a bad, bad, bad game. So I've got to now pick a game which is really popular, which I personally think is a terrible game. Now, there's one easy answer to this, and that's Munchkin. Munchkin is a very popular game, but, and I don't want this to come across as like I'm a elitist jerk but people who generally like the kind of games that i prefer generally don't like munchkin so if we were to divide the entire gaming hobbyists into different compartments there is a group of people who really enjoy playing munchkin they are the kind of people 
who I don't think would enjoy playing medium to heavy Euro games. Now, there's probably some crossovers. There are people who enjoy both. And if you're one of those people, let me know. But I think generally speaking, the people who like the kind of games I like will generally speaking not like those games. Generally speaking, if you see what I mean. So, uh, but Munchkin is a hobbyist game. It's not a mass market game. It's definitely a hobbyist game, but I think it's a bad, bad, bad game. I think it's a terrible design. Uh, and, I, and I could go on for, for five or ten minutes. And I'm not just criticising the game because I don't like the game. I don't like the game because I think it's a badly designed game. And you might think, well, how can it be that popular if it's so badly designed? Well, as we've seen many times in our industry, certain games, if they have the right combination of, you know, artwork and theme or whatever, and they're good for a particular market. And they, that you know, Munchkin is a great game for that target audience because they enjoy playing it. Personally, I think it is a terrible game that's just really badly designed um, that I'm sure if me and a few friends got together and had a couple of beers, we'd probably be able to design the same game. You know, there's, there's yeah, anyway. So there you go. That's, that's the easy answer, I think. Um... Right, Nigel has asked a question. Uh, it seems that Holy Grail Games, who is the publisher of Rallyman GT, Museum, Dominations, Encyclopedia, etc., has, as of yesterday, declared bankruptcy. Now, this is not a good story. If you want to know more about this, head on over to Board Game Geek or the Holy Grail Games Facebook page. Um, this is sad news for everybody involved. Um, and it's sad news for me... Um, personally, not because I have any relationship with them. I don't have any of those games. I've heard good things about Encyclopedia. I've heard good things about Museum. Uh, I've heard good things about Dominations. And there's some of their games that I was interested in. The reason why it's a bit sad is Holy Grail Games is run by a guy called Jamie. I've known Jamie for many, many, many years because... If we go way, way, way back when, to when Gaming Rules was just starting, I did a video for a Kickstarter campaign for a game called Conan. Conan ended up making $5 million on Kickstarter, and it was one of the biggest games around at the time. And Jamie was the one who was the marketing person who worked for Monolith at the time, who was my contact when I was working on the video. So this is going back a long time. I can't even remember when it was, but it feels like seven years ago, maybe, or something like that. Um, and yeah, Jamie was my contact. So I was just getting started. I did that. Jamie then left Monolith and went on, uh, did other things. Uh, and Jamie's a really nice guy. And I've met him a few times at various conventions and I've chatted with him online and things like that. Um, he's very tall, very good looking. Um, he's French no he's, he's English but he lives in France and he speaks fluent in both languages anyway really nice guy and I've not spoken to him for a while so it is a bit unusual that I've never actually reached out to him to ask for any review copies of their games or if they wanted any of their games covered on the channel um, but that's not to say that I'm not a fan of him and, and what he's done anyway and it's really sad that this has happened um, because if you read the article it's basically, the, it's it's another company's fault. It, it isn't, you know, there's a lot of companies at the moment that are struggling because um, shipment costs have gone up, production costs have gone up, 
Kickstarter delays, and there's a, there's a few companies that are having problems with it at the moment. But when you read what's happened to Holy Grail Games, it is generally down to another uh, company, another distributor. And when you read the details of it, it's shocking um, what, what's happened. And I feel really bad for them. Um, I'm not going to reach out to Jamie privately yet, but I will reach out to him at some point and just say, look, sorry, this has happened. But it means that their most recent Kickstarter project, Copan, will not happen. And backers will likely lose most, if not all, of their investment. So what it means, if you are a backer of that game and I think another game, you have probably lost that money. Now, they are going to do as much as they can. They've they filed for bankruptcy uh, and any money that they can get in and any money they can get back will be refunded as much as possible. But it, it, it's a shame. And it's a shame not just, you know, I, I feel differently about this than I do about um, Inside the Box, which is a UK company that something similar has happened to. In other words, they have got outstanding games where backers are waiting to get their copies and might not get their copies. But with Inside the Box, it looks like it's been complete mismanagement by the owner. This doesn't look like it's through any fault of anybody at Holy Grail Games. It looks like it's down mainly due to the fault of, of third parties. And it just makes me feel sad. Um, anyway, Nigel is saying, obviously, this is not the first time for this to happen to a Kickstarter publisher. And crowdfunding does carry a certain amount of risk. But seeing as the effects of COVID continue to reverberate throughout the world, do I feel that publishers and backers should exercise caution when crowdfunding at the moment? Or from what you have seen, it as, as is it business as usual? I am surprised that it is still business as usual. And I've been saying for the last three or four years that at some point the bottom is going to fall out of Kickstarter. And people are going to stop jumping on board with these multi-million dollars Kickstarters that are full of miniatures and bling. And it's not happening. Kickstarter is still going from strength to strength. And games are still funding and not just Kickstarter, but GameFound and any other crowdfunding platform. It's still happening. And in a time where people are having to cut costs, we have global crises, we have the war in Ukraine, we have all of this. From my perspective on the gaming industry is it doesn't actually seem to have altered it that much. Prices have gone up, but what I mean, it hasn't altered it. Of course, it's altered it, but it hasn't altered companies going to Kickstarter with big games and making an absolute fortune. If you just look at the games that are on Kickstarter right now, they are raking in hundreds of thousands of pounds. So it, it, it I'm, I'm surprised. Um, so it is, from my perception, it is business as usual, but should backers exercise caution when considering crowdfunding? Should they be doing it now more than they did before? Possibly. But what can you do? You know, Holy Grail Games were an established company. They were delivering on various projects. They've done some really good games. There was no signs of this. So if it could happen to them, it could happen to anybody. Next question, and this is the last one before we go to the live questions. And I realise that it's been an hour and a quarter since we started, but that's because I've talked a lot. Alex says, I imagine for a content creator, it's difficult to play a game more than half a dozen times. Absolutely right. In fact, it's difficult to play a game more than once, sometimes. Is it hard to distinguish what games have a high rate of replayability or that last? Or can it be easy to see the faults or things that would annoy you after just a couple of plays? It's a really good question. And it brings me back to... A question which has been asked many, many times over the years, mainly of reviewers, of which I am one, 
um, is how many times do you need to play a game in order to be able to do a review? And there are certain people out there, and you might be watching this video right now, and you might be thinking a reviewer needs to play a game at least three or three or four times before they can have an opinion on it, right? And I used to think something similar. However, I can have an opinion on a game and give you my thoughts on it after I've played it once. Now, that's not to say that I'm a super genius, but after I have played a game, I immediately have a impression about how good it was for me. Now, I'm not saying that that, uh, that, is, that is a perfect opinion because it is based on one play. But I know after I've played a game one time, whether I enjoyed it or not, whether some parts, <coughs> excuse me, whether some parts of it worked, whether some parts of it didn't work and, and things like that. There are definitely opinions that I can have about a game after one play. Certainly, if there were any flaws in the game or let's say mechanisms which I didn't enjoy, they would be highlighted to me after the first play. OK, um, th that it would be it would be fairly obvious. They would stand out to me, for example, a game where you are exploring caves to find treasure and you go through all of this stuff and you build your party of adventurers and you get to the end and you draw a card and it is worth a random number of points between one and ten. And I draw a card and I get nine points and you draw a card and you get two points, right? I never want to play that game ever again, just for an example. And I, I know straight away, or I think, oh my God, the game was fantastic. Everything about the game was fantastic, except we had this stupid, totally random card draw at the end. Okay, so there are certain impressions I can have about a game after the first play. However, it is often the case that the more you play the game, the more you have a different opinion. And I want to give you an example of this. Perfect example, Halatau. Now, the reason why this is a perfect example is I played a solo game of Halatau yesterday. Um, but Halatau, when I got it, I was so excited about it. This was the latest Uwe Rosenberg game. It's in a big box. So well, hopefully it's one of his big box games, not one of his lighter games. And I was so, so excited about it. And I got it and I played it and I thought it was fantastic. I loved it because you're doing all of this stuff and you're you're planting crops in fields. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, you're harvesting the crops. You're doing, right, brilliant, loved it. Then I played it a second time. And after the second time, I started to have some thoughts. And then I played it a third time. And after the third time, I went, I'm not sure I ever want to play this game again. And that's not because it was bad. It's because after the third play, it suddenly clicked that the cards in this game are playing me. I'm drawing lots of cards in this game. And I'm kind of then just going, oh, if I get seven sheep, I get this bonus. Right. I'll now try and get seven sheep. I, I don't know. And again, I'm not going to do a full review of, uh, of Halatau in this video, but I've set it up again downstairs uh, and I'm, I'm playing. I'm going to play through a few solo games just to see if that opinion of mine is uh, is confirmed. So, yeah, sometimes it does take a few plays for you to realize certainly replayability um, because it might be 
that you've played a game once and you thought, oh, that game was really good. There's definitely games that I've played which I think, okay, this is a great game. I loved this game. And I could play this game at least four or five times and still enjoy it. But then would I enjoy it after five plays? And that's where you get to the point of saying, okay, I've played it five times. I've really enjoyed those five games. But actually every game after that is playing out the same. Uh, yeah, we, we, let's, let's start a conversation about this on the Slack channel because I've got a lot more to say about it. Anyway, we've gone on way, way longer with these questions than we normally would. So let's have a short break. And I wanted to say a few things. First of all, a big thank you to all of my patron supporters. As I mentioned at the start, um, I do rely on the financial support of the Patreon campaign in order to keep the channel going. Right now, as of uh, today, we have 915 patron supporters, which you might be a little confused about because we were 920 at the end of January. So by the end of January, we reached 920 patron supporters, which was fantastic. Thank you very much to everybody who started supporting me in January. But the way that it works, it, Patreon, every single month, I lose about 20, 25 people. Some of them leave, but even the ones who don't leave, people's credit cards expire and then they just don't fix it because Patreon is absolutely awful at notifying people. So if you think you're one of my Patreon supporters, please can you pop onto Patreon and just check that you are actually still a Patreon member because there are, as I say, I lose 20 to 25 people a month just because their credit cards expire and a lot of them don't realise that and therefore don't get the notifications and, and don't renew. Which is why, and I, I've gained, I think I've gained 10 new supporters this month, but yeah, from when we went up from January and end of January to start of February, my patron supporters suddenly went down to 895. Uh, and then it, it's gradually going back up again. Anyway, big thank you to all of my patron supporters for funding the channel. If you like the content that I create and you want to help me make more videos, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. Next thing is... I do a contest every month as part of this live q and I do a contest uh, and you can win £50 worth of games vouchers from Games Law. Now, £25 of that voucher comes from Games Law themselves. So a big thank you to Games Law for helping to support the show and giving me £25 to give away. And the other £25 comes from me. In order to win £50 worth of games vouchers from Games Law, all you need to do is click on the link which is going to be in the chat now. And this link will also be in the description of the video, which I need to add it in there. Um, and the secret word, in fact, it's two words. So I've been doing some tidying up recently and I have here an old card from the um, Middle Earth collectible card game. And it is the card Lesser Spiders. So that's today's secret word, Lesser Spiders. Um, all you need to do is enter the form, put in your details. Uh, and if you are a patron supporter, you get two entries into the hat. And if you're not a patron supporter, you can still enter. You get one entry into the hat. Um, and I'm pleased to say that last month's winner is Brendan. Uh, so congratulations, Brendan. You entered the contest. I can't remember which ticket number you were. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for your support. And good luck. Now, the contest will run from now until the 14th of March, 2023. So if you're watching this video back in three weeks' time and you think, oh, I've missed the contest, you haven't. The contest runs for the next month. Um, so yeah, enter the contest. Uh, we normally get about a hundred people entering. In fact, last month we had 118 people enter. Um, so yeah, chance of winning is quite high. Enter the contest. You might win 50 pounds worth of games vouchers. 
The next thing I want to mention is, could we have no more questions, please? We've got enough questions now to keep us going till the end of the show and, and then some. So no more questions. If you do have a burning question for me, please save it till next month. I do these every month. Um, so save it till then. Right. First question <coughs> uh, from Ian Turner. What would be a good question for the guild? That's a very good question. In fact, if you want to pop that question on the guild and say what would be a good question for the guild, we might make the world explode with a... Um, yeah, well, that was an easy one. Right, next question is, what's my favourite heavy euro? Yeah, I mean, lots of them. <laughs> um, it depends if you class Mage Knight as a euro game. A lot of people do and a lot of people don't. Um, but, yeah... I, I mean, I, I I always say I don't really have a number one game apart from Mage Knight. I like a lot of heavy Euros. What I would strongly recommend is going back to part three of my Paul Rates' entire collection. Don't worry, you don't have to watch all four hours of it, but go to the end of that video. So anybody who is interested in the, the final results, although they are a little bit questionable, is... Go and check out my video, Paul Rates' his entire collection, part three, from the start of January this year, and scroll to the end of the video. And at the end of the video, you will see my top 10, top 20 games. Um, but there's a, there's a lot in there. Um, ones from memory, Caverna, Through the Ages, Age Night, Maracaibo, Great Western Trail, that kind of thing. They are my, my favourite ones. Uh, Monica is asking, how was young Paul? Just want to hear what he did as a kid, hobbies, and what he did in his pastime. Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, so as a kid, uh, I played D&D. &D. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I started playing games in the in sort of like 82, 83. Um, prior to that, I don't remember much. But yeah, what I did as a kid is I, I was a geek. I was a complete geek, complete nerd. I didn't really go out socialising. Uh, I played Dungeons and Dragons. I played Talisman with my friends in an afternoons um, and yeah, that kind of thing. What hobbies did I have? Gaming. I mean, I did I did read some books back then, but it was basically gaming. Gaming has always been my hobby. I don't remember any other hobbies that I had as a kid. I'm trying to think. Do you, have I ever mentioned any other hobby that I had when I was a kid? No, because I don't think I had one. Um, no, it was, it was just gaming for me. Um... Yeah, that, that was it, really. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a bit sad, but that's it. Um, next question from Tassi. Do I think great companies like Come On? Well, great is a matter of opinion. Uh, shall we say big companies? Do I think big companies like Cool Mini or not should be allowed to use crowdfunding? Now, this is, this is an interesting one because if you're going to include a company like Cool Mini or not, you should also be including a company like Eagle Griffin Games and Queen Games. Uh, it has been said, and I know a lot of people think that those three publishers should not be using Kickstarter. However, they do. That's their model. Do I think that they should, should be allowed to use it? That's not for me to say. I can totally understand why a number of people don't think they should be using crowdfunding. Um, because the, the whole idea of crowdfunding is we've got an idea for a game, okay? We've got this crazy idea for a game and we need money in order to make this happen. But that's not what Kickstarter is used. 
if you look at games that are on Kickstarter right now, they're already going to happen. Most of the games that go to Kickstarter are already finished, already developed, all of the artworks done, all of the gameplays done, tens of thousands of pounds has been spent on the game already, and the game's already going to happen. They are using Kickstarter or other crowdfunding because it actually makes them more money than if they went to retail. It's just a simple fact of that. Uh, and I've spoken about the economies of this, uh, the economics of this more um, in, in other videos in the past. Um, do, but do I think that they should be allowed to use it? That's not for me to say. Um, it really isn't. I do, as a gamer, I do find it a little odd. But as I say, they do it for financial reasons and that's what works for them. Um, Johnny's talking about Holy Grail games again. Yep. They're closing their business. Any thoughts on the future of the industry as only the big players seem to be safe these days? Actually, John, I don't agree with that. I don't think it is only the big players seem to be safe. There are a lot of small uh, independent publishers who I think are safe. Um, if we look at somebody like uh, Richard Breeze from R&D Games, he's a, he's a, he's a one-man band, effectively. Uh, if we look at Surprised Stair Games, Alan Paul and Charlie Paul, um, I, I think they're going to be okay. Um, so it, I, I don't think it is just the big players uh, that seem to be safe. And I would have put Holy Grail as not a, not a big player, but certainly certainly well established. Um, so I, I think I think the problems that we're seeing in the industry with price right prices rising and things like that could affect anybody at any level. Um, Next question, one versus the board says, have I ever had negative reviews stroke feedback on a rule book you've written? Yes, absolutely. Um, and in fact, this is a, this is a this is an interesting one because um, and for those of you that don't know, I officially I have officially retired from rule book writing and editing. But some of the rule books that I did before I finished, uh, one of them that I'm really proud of and I think is a very very good rule book I found a couple of small little errors in it so I'm going to say it's 99% perfect so it's not 100% perfect but overall I think it is an extremely good rule book and that is Frostpunk and I'm not saying this because I'm biased and I'm not saying it is perfect I am saying that it's nearly perfect and there's a few things in it that we could have done better. Uh, we should have had an image of the starting wall tokens in the setup diagram. We should have put the glossary at the back of the rule book instead of at the back of the scenario book. It wasn't my choice. Um, but there were a couple of other bits. And there's one paragraph that nobody spotted yet where I call something a token. And then later in the paragraph, I call it a marker. That's my fault. That's on me. Um, but anyway, I think the Frostpunk rule book, and again, I'm not being big headed or arrogant or anything about this, I think it is a very, very good rule book for a complex game because Frostpunk is a very complex game with a lot going on. However, oh, oh and I've had a lot of positive feedback about the rule book. So many people have contacted me and left me messages on Facebook and everything else and said, this is the best rule book we've ever read for a complex game. It's fantastic. But there is one person on the Frostpunk Facebook group that said they thought the rule book was one of the worst rule books they'd ever read. They said it was full of ambiguities. I, I've yet to see any ambiguities in there. Uh, they said the structure 
They said everything was in the wrong place. It made it impossible to learn the game. And I'm like reading this thinking, am I dreaming? Because I know it's not that bad. Um, and then they went on to provide literally an entire page worth of information about how the rulebook was was really not very good at all. Now, I respect them. They, they're obviously a, a real person and they've got their own thoughts and they felt the rulebook was bad. And they went into detail about how they do technical writing for their job and they are experienced in in knowing how things should be structured. Um, and it was funny because the person who wrote this feedback, and you might be watching this video right now, um, the person who wrote it didn't realize my experience of writing rule books. And they said, was this the first rule book you've ever written? Um, and, and they said something about, but don't worry, it's okay for a start, stick with it and, and you'll get better. And I didn't take that as an insult because it wasn't meant as an insult. It was genuinely meant as they thought the rule book was terrible. And they were asking, is this the first rule book I've ever done? Uh, and it was like, you know, other people might have been really insulted by reading it. I wasn't. But as I read through this big page long worth of feedback about all the things wrong with the rule book, I disagreed with every single one of them. And again, that's not being that's not me being protective. But they were saying, this is in the wrong place. It should be there. And I was like, no, it, it shouldn't be there. That's the wrong place to put it in. Thankfully, 99% of people seem to think that the Frostpunk rulebook is, uh, is good. So yes, I have had some very negative feedback on uh, rulebooks that I've written. Next question from Monica. Experienced losing a game, either one you ordered that was lost in the postal service or even lost before it got shipped. Radio silence from the distributor. Okay, so not, not having a game and losing it, but actually one that I ordered that didn't arrive because it got lost in the system or it got lost before it even got shipped to me. I try to think. I don't think so. Have I ever... I mean, have I ever... The thing is, I don't... I don't buy games. I don't order games. I don't back games, really. Um, yeah, I can't think about one. No, can't think. I guess I've been lucky in that respect. Have I lost a game that I owned? Probably. I think I left a copy of Andromeda on a train from London in 1999 and then went out and bought it again. And it's actually not a very good game. I've still got it. Probably in the garage. Um, oh, no, I think I got rid of it in the charity raffle. Next question. Uh, from Len. Approximately how many hours does it take to go from having a game in hand to putting out a review video for the average game? So Lem, I don't actually do review videos anymore. Um, what I do now is that I tag on the review to the end of the playthrough. So if it wasn't a sponsored video, and if you want to check out my latest one, it was Fayum last Friday, but we played the game and then all five of us gave our review of the game after, after one play. Um, I don't actually do review videos anymore, but when I used to do review videos, and this is the reason why I stopped doing review videos is because how many hours does it take from having a game in hand to putting out a review video? For me, it was about 25 to 30. Well, probably 20 to 25 because I would first of all have to get the game, I'd have to learn the game, I'd have to play the game. Then I'd have to play the game again. Then I'd have to play a, a different play account, then another play account. Then if it had a solo mode, I'd have to play it again. 
then I'd write the <coughs> sorry, I'd write the review, then I'd film the review, then I'd edit the review, then I'd do all the B-roll footage. To get one game from in your hands to reviewing it, it would take me, yeah, 20, 25 hours. Um, which is one reason why I've stopped doing review videos, because I don't have that length of time to focus on one specific game. And right now, I just tag my thoughts on the game to the end of a playthrough video. Um, yeah, um, it is a question that I would like to ask somebody like Luke Hector, because Luke from The Broken Meeple, he knocks out review videos like, seems to be quite easy. Um, and seems to be very regularly, but Luke has a full-time job and I know that he plays the games a few times before he does a review video on them. Um, so that's that's it. I, it's getting the game, learning it, playing it a few times and then doing the review video. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Luke later on, but I'm guessing it's probably about 15 hours or so um, for Luke as well. Uh, and Jonathan's in the chat as well. So yeah, Luke's review videos use mainly pictures, very little gameplay. Yeah, but he's still got to have played the game. He's still got to have actually spent the time playing the game. Um, oh, you meant a tutorial video. Ah, right. You meant a tutorial. Right. Okay. Different, different story then. Um, I mean, I can tell you. Yeah. And, and so how long does it take for me, for the average game, to go from getting it in hand to putting out a tutorial video? Right. That, that's, a, that's a different story. Um, Let's take the latest one, Earth. My how to play video for Earth went live yesterday. From the moment I got it in my hand, how long did that whole process take? It's probably about 30 hours uh, because it's getting the game, learning it, playing it a few times, writing the script, filming the video, editing the video. It's probably about 30 hours. And that is one of my shorter ones. If you look at Frostpunk, you're looking at probably 90 hours. I mean, the Frostpunk video alone took me 65 hours to make, and I already knew how to play the game. If I didn't know how to play Frostpunk, then how long would it have taken me to get it, learn it, and play it enough to feel comfortable teaching it? Probably about 20 hours, easily. Um, so yeah, Frostpunk would have probably been about 85 to 90 hours. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that how to play video that I did for Frostpunk, which went live a couple of weeks ago, that was 65 hours of work. It took probably two days to write the script, uh, which is writing it, refining it, checking it. You know, I don't just sit there and write a script in a few hours. I, I spend a lot of time making sure that that script is absolutely perfect. It flows well. I get people to check it. So yeah. Right. Next question. Uh, if Hollywood, this is from James, if Hollywood ever made a movie about my life, which actor would I like to play me? I think one that probably is as who is a is roughly the same level of attractiveness as me so probably robert downey jr what why why are you smiling are you are you we do you remember years and years and years ago like 12 years ago maybe more we were talking about brad pitt and i said to you something about who's more attractive me or brad pitt and you said me and it was because you think you don't think Brad Pitt's attractive or something like that. Do you remember that? You don't remember that? I remember that. Um, which actor would I like to play me? I mean, to be honest, I would want an actor who I think is a good actor to play me. 
So, and I would want somebody who would, because um, yeah, without without going too much into into negative thoughts, um, there's there's I have a lot of negative things. I have a lot of bad things going on in my life, and I suffer a lot from lots of various mental health issues and things like that. So I'd want an actor who would be able to portray both the happy good side and also the uh the the darker side as well um so i'm thinking something like i mean having seen what's the name of the actor in the thing that we're watching right now british male british male actor who's in what we're watching right now james mcavoy because james mcavoy i think is an excellent actor and having seen him in split was it split and there was the other one as well um i think he's able to do a different range um of emotions and states like that so yeah somebody like that um anyway next question from lem what are my thoughts on the increasing use of apps or digital media in board games i this is another uh, question i get asked a lot i have uh i think it's great i i have absolutely no problem with uh digital support for games which are adding more flavor and theme so the iss vanguard app for example i think is is fantastic i think it's really really good and i think it enriches the entire experience and it's good that it's optional you don't need it but if you want to use it you can have it the same with oathsworn oathsworn is fully narrated uh frosthaven is fully narrated as well so i think these apps are great and the more and more people use them the yeah the better i, I really like them uh, next question which older game in my collection do i most want to play again since i haven't played it in a while oh right well let's uh, let's go with assyria because assyria has been talked about a lot when i did the rating my old games and it is an older game in my collection and it is probably the one that i most want to play again thankfully it is on board game arena um but there's a lot you know when i was go when i was rating my whole collection there were so many games that I was covering that I haven't played in over 10 years. Assyria, In the Shadow of the Emperor, uh, and loads and loads of other ones. And yeah, I'd love to play all of those older ones again. But let's go with that one. Next question from Frederick. How many patrons will it take to play all of the games in my collection? Um, it's, ju it's just not possible. For me to play every game in my collection would require me to play two games a day every single day for a year and that is just not possible i would have to literally give up all of my paid work and or and, and i would have to seven days a week or I, I guess what i could do if i did if i did uh two a day 15 15 a week so it would be monday to friday three games a day it's just not possible yeah so yeah it would be nice but realistically never going to happen um now for me to play the top 50 games in my collection but even that that's that's one a week i'm struggling to fit everything in at the moment um do i think a concordia big box is well overdue with all of the maps that's a good question actually i think it is i'm surprised they've not done one already um, I've got Concordia with all of the maps. That's another game I want to cover more on the channel. But yeah, we don't have a Concordia big box with all of the maps. It is well overdue. Um, 
Oh, in relation to the previous comments that I made about prototypes, Mike is asking, would I consider auctioning off these prototypes signed by me for charity? Mike thinks that there would be a market for them and it would serve a greater purpose than recycling. It is a possibility, Mike. What I could do is the next time I have a prototype um, I could that the publisher no longer wants, I could ask the publisher, would you be okay if I auctioned this game off for charity? I'd be happy to sign it. We could possibly get the designer to sign it or something like that. Because somebody might want it. My problem with it is that I am I am giving you a game which you which isn't the finished game. Now, if 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 I'm giving you the game which is pretty much the finished game, then great, you've got a playable game. But a lot of the prototypes that I get, I'm giving it to you, and then the game's going to be changed. So what you've got is you've got an older version of a game. Um, as I say, there's a difference between a prototype, which is, look, this is the finished game, it's just a prototype, and actually, this is a work in progress, and a lot of things are going to change. Like in the attic right now, I have, I think, a prototype copy of Zhang Nan. I think, or I might have got rid of it. Um, but the game's changed so much since that prototype, I don't think anybody would want it. And I lost one of the pieces. Uh, next question from Dimitri. World climate changes make people think more about the environment. Yes, even games uh, are coming. So we've got Evergreen, Earth, Earthborn Ragers. Is nature-driven theme our nearest board game future? Um, I mean, I like nature-driven themes. And obviously, I've just done a how-to-play video for Earth. And that is a game which I... I chose to do a how to play video for because I wanted to um, because I liked the game. And yeah, I mean, we've got Ark Nova, which is about animals. We've got quite a few games about animals. We don't have many games about, you know, Earth and stuff. Evergreen, I've not played. Earthborn Rangers has been high on my list for a while. I really need to contact the publisher for Earthborn Rangers because it looks fantastic. I don't know that much about it, but the little I do know about it, it looks great. Uh, next question from Board Games with Niramas. Hi, thank you very much. How far have I gotten into Frosthaven? We haven't started it. Uh, we, we haven't started it and people keep asking me, when are we going to start it? We actually don't have any plans to start it. And that's not that we don't want to. It's just we have very little time for actually playing games. Um, and the next one, that I, the next big campaign game that I want to play is ISS Vanguard. So ISS Vanguard for me is going to get played um, over Frosthaven. And yes, Frosthaven might be too heavy to take on New Moon. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, next question from Monica. Best Sherlock Holmes games you have played, if any? That is the easiest question that I have been asked all year, Monica. And the answer is Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, preferably Box 4, which is the green box. But yes, by far, without a shadow of the doubt, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective is the best Sherlock Holmes game that I have played. Next question from Alex. Did I ever have a fight in a game that risked a friendship? Yes. There have been there have been a few times in my life um, where I have had disagreements with somebody in a game which has risked a friendship or actually spoiled a friendship. Um... Yeah. Now, these days, I think I'm a little bit better than I used to be, but I used to get quite angsty and angry about certain things, and I'd make those feelings very clear. 
Um, and that wasn't a good thing to do. And I look back at those times and I know that I was in the wrong for reacting the way that I did. Um, but as I, as I look back through my gaming history of many, many, many years ago, I'm sure that I'm sure there has been, uh, sure, sure there has been some, um, these days though. Yeah. I don't think I'm, I'd like to think that that wouldn't happen to me now. Uh, cause I've sort of grown up a bit as a, as a person and, yeah, I mean, the kind of games that I play and the people that I play games with, generally they like the same sort of games that I play. So, yeah. Final question for today, and then we're going to mention the contest again, is from Tazzy. What is the most overrated game in the last time? I'm not sure what you mean by in the last time. Um, what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to go to Board Game Geek and I am going to have a look through uh, the list of games uh let me have a look what's the best way to get the top 10 games um on board game geek it's by clicking on that and then clicking on that okay right so what i'm going to do is i'm going to pull up the list of games on board game geek and their ranking and i am going to tell you which ones in the top 20 do I think are the most overrated? And that's not to say that these are bad games, but that's to say that I don't think these games are as good as the majority of other people seem to think they are. So the first one is Pandemic Legacy Season 1. That is on Board Game Geek, the number three game of all time. I have massive respect for what Pandemic Legacy has done for the industry and for the hobby and what it's brought us in legacy games. I don't think the game is good enough to be the number three game of all time. Um, looking down the list, I have played War of the Ring second edition once. I thought it was good. I don't think it is good enough to be the number nine best game of all time. Um, also looking down the list, So Twilight Struggle is in the top 20. Twilight Struggle is number 14 on the list. Again, I have a massive amount of respect for Twilight Struggle. And there is a huge amount of Twilight Struggle that I think is brilliant. But I think the dice for the coup results are move it away from a game that I'm comfortable playing. And I know fans of the game will say, oh, those dice rolls don't matter or it all averages out in the end. Yeah. Um, other things, Seven Wonders Duel. Seven Wonders Duel is the 19th best game of all time on Board Game Geek. I think Seven Wonders Duel is a good game. I don't think it is the 19th best game of all time. Um, and the last game in the top 20 that I'm not sure should be there is Scythe. And again, I think Scythe is a good game, but I don't think after... And this is going... This is touching on the things that we talked about earlier with replayability. I think one of the problems with Scythe is that once you've played the game 10 times, it is very much you play to a formula. You do things in a certain order based on where you start on the map. And therefore, you're not actually making any real decisions because there are certain things that you have to do in order to play well. This is from the people I know that have played it 10 times. I've only played it a few times. But anyway, there you go. That's, that's a few games in the top 20, which personally... I think are overrated, and that's just my personal opinion of those games, is that they should be lower on the list. Wow. 
longest Q&A that we've ever done. And that's down to me from talking a lot. Um, big thank you to everybody for supporting the channel. I'm not going to be doing anything else tonight, um, but I will be back um, tomorrow. Uh, in fact, I've got some I've got some Patreon only bonus streams. So as a as a bonus thank you to all of my patron supporters, I'm going to be playing Dune Imperium tomorrow night um, at ten o'clock in the evening. And on Friday, we've got four videos on Friday. One of them is going to be public. We're going to be playing Dice Manor at eight o'clock on Friday night. But in the afternoon, we're going to be playing Dice Manor. We're going to be playing Lacrimosa. Uh, and then we're going to be playing something else after Dice Manor. Those other three are going to be Patreon only. And finally, on Sunday, for patron supporters only, I am going to be doing a playthrough of, hege of Hegemony. If you're a patron supporter, I will be sending you a message uh, tomorrow with links to all of those videos so that you can watch them. And why am I doing them Patreon only? It's not because I'm hiding content behind my paywall. It's because... Um, these videos are not suitable for being public videos on the channel because they are basically very informal. They are Paul learning how to play a game. They're very rough. They're very ready. They're not the kind of games that I really want to be appearing on the channel. They're very much a behind-the-scenes video of watching what Paul gets up to in preparation for the actual public stream. So, yeah, so lots more videos coming in the next few days. Um, speaking of Patreon... If you are in a position to be able to support the channel, then please do so. Patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. You get access to the gaming rules community, the Slack channel, uh, access to an online gaming group where we play lots of online games together and access to these behind the scenes videos. Um, yeah, the hegemony game on Sunday, I am very, very much looking forward to. I've browsed through the rules. I've played a couple of turns myself um, and sure, I'm doing a sponsored playthrough video for it, but I can tell you now I'm really excited about it. And finally, just before we go, the contest. If you haven't entered the contest yet, please enter the contest. All you need to do is click on the link which will appear in the chat. And also it will be in the description of the video. And the secret word is lesser spiders. I don't even know if that's showing on screen. Is it showing on screen? It probably is showing on screen. I'm really hungry. Is it, well, You said dinner will be 20 minutes after we finish the Q&A. Will it still be 20 minutes after we finish the Q&A? Oh. Right. Um, yeah, thank you to everybody for your support. And as I say, I'll be back later in the week with some more videos. Until then, plenty of other videos on the channel to watch. If you want to go and learn how to play Earth, really good game. That video is live on the channel now. Go and check it out. It's only a 20-minute video. And if you want to learn how to play Frostpunk, that's a little bit longer video. But there's other videos on the channel now. Um, yeah, we're all done. Thanks again. Take care, everybody. See you soon. Bye-byes.